Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we are here today to talk about a highly controversial case, actually, that came to us from our dear listener, Constance. Thank you, Constance. Yes, thanks for listening, Constance, and thanks for sending me this case because upon first inspection, I thought I was going to feel a certain way about it. And mm-hmm. then the deeper and the deeper I got, the more I realized, holy shit. I want to begin by saying right from the start, like I said, this is highly controversial and I am not here to sway anyone's beliefs one way or the other. I am here simply to present research that I've done. I w- recently was having a conversation with a friend about how doing a podcast is like putting together puzzle pieces, but each piece was created by different individuals. Mm-hmm. And my job is to put them together without knowing what the end picture is going to be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't it kind of feel like that sometimes when we're researching? And that's what the research for this case was like for me. I set out wondering what the end picture would look like. And then I started to move towards knowing like, oh, this is it. And then I found pieces that challenged what I thought I knew. So today I bring you pieces that I've put together to form a picture of the case. But your interpretation of it is up to you. Kind of like art. Yeah. Interpretive uh, case today. Yeah. It's going to be. And I don't know anything about this. And like you said, you haven't told me anything. On purpose. Yep. On purpose. So I have completely no knowledge of anything to do with this case. Yes. And I'm not even going to name the particular perpetrators. I mean, if people, the summary, they're going to, they're going to see, but I want to kind of just, I just want to tell you the story. All right. I like story time. Yeah. I encourage you all to watch the movie Trial by Fire and then the ID Discovery show Evil Lives Here. Have you ever watched any of those episodes? Uh, Nope. I I see it advertised all the time, but I hadn't watched any until this case. The Evil Lives Here episode is called What If He Was Innocent? It's season four, episode one, which is an interview that was done by Stacy at the time that this incident happened. Her last name was Willingham, but she is now, I'm going to butcher it, Kukendall. It's K-U-Y-K-E-N-D-A-L-L. Okay. I'm just going to call her Stacy. And so she did an interview, a face-to-face, one-on-one interview with ID Discovery with Evil Lives Here. She did that interview on 8-21-2020. And it aired actually just this past February 2021. So in Trial by Fire came out, I think, just a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019. Okay. She actually did her interview with Evil Lives here uh, as a rebuttal to the Trial by Fire, I would say. And the Trial by Fire movie was based on an article. It's an investigative article. It's very long. I also used that for references, so it will be linked in the show notes, but you do have to have a subscription to The New Yorker to be able to access it. And it was called Trial by Fire by David Gran. So once that article was read, the producers were like, whoa, we need to make a movie about this. I'm going to begin this case on December 23rd, 1991, in the home of Cameron Todd Willingham and Stacey Willingham. It takes place in Corsicana, Texas. I'm sorry if I 
put the wrong emphasis there. I mean, it sounded good to me, so. I know. I can tell from our analytics that we have a lot of Texas listeners. Yes. So I apologize if I didn't say that as beautiful as y'all would. You tried. You tried. I did. So it's December 23rd, 91. It's 9.04 a.m. Cameron, who goes by Todd, so he will henceforth be called Todd. I love henceforth. Yes. You got to throw it out once in a while. A good henceforth. Absolutely. Someday I want to write on a scroll. (laughs) Henceforth. You shall be henceforth known as Todd. (laughs) Todd was woken up by his two-year-old daughter, Amber, yelling, Daddy, Daddy. Todd quickly realizes the house is on fire. Smoke is everywhere. He retrieves a pair of jeans on the floor and hurried into them. Todd goes to the girl's bedroom. His hair caught on fire and he pats it out. The heat is like nothing he has ever felt before. He is crawling along the floor, patting it as debris is falling on him. He thinks he finds a child's foot, but realizes it's a doll. He can feel himself passing out. He runs down the hall and exits through the front door. According to the New Yorker, 11-year-old Buffy Barbie, we're just, we're going to, I said it. I, uh, I'm going to let that <laughs> well, just Okay, because she's 11. There. Okay. We're going to, we're going to yeah. leave it alone, yep. but we're all Acknowledging thinking Acknowledging and mm-hmm. moving on. Yep. So Buffy Barbie had been playing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we all couldn't right, let it go. Fine. It's a horrible <laughs> name. Okay. I have to say it. We couldn't, we could not. I tried it. really hard to hold it in. <laughs> not in our style. <laughs> it does not flow in any it way, doesn't. and it makes me die inside, okay? And Barbie is spelled B-A-R-B-E-E. Bar-B-E. Shame on them, okay? There, I'm done. Maybe it's Buffet Babe. <laughs> the fancy version, yes. Like, yep. I have to acknowledge it's a horrible name. It's, it's, it's terrible. I'm sorry. I agree. All right, I'm done. So, Ooh. she just lived two houses down, and she went to get her mother, Diane, and they hurried down the street to see Todd Willingham standing on the front porch as he had just exited the house. He was wearing jeans only, his chest is covered in soot, and his hair and eyelids are singed. He was screaming, my babies are burning up. His oh. children, Carmen and Cameron, who were one-year-old twin girls and two-year-old Amber, were trapped inside. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He told Diane to call the fire department, and she ran back to her home to do so. While she was gone, Todd used a large stick to break the twins' bedroom window, and on impact, the fire blew out like an explosion. The girl's mother, Stacy Willingham, was not home. She works nights, and she had went that morning to the Salvation Army to buy Christmas gifts for the girls, since it was just two days before Christmas. Oh, gosh. Stacy was standing in line when a cop came into the store and announced that he was looking for Stacy Willingham. The police could not tell Stacy anything. They were just instructed to take her to the hospital. At the hospital, Stacy was put into a private room and informed by a doctor that her two-year-old daughter, Amber, did not make it. So she frantically starts wanting to know where her twins are at, running, looking into rooms, and a nurse informs her that the twins were at a funeral home because they had not made it either. Oh, my God. This is starting out shredding my soul to bits. I needed to get the hard part over with first. It's kind of like the Susan Powell case where I was like, bad stuff first, then we're going to talk about the case. Okay. Okay. That's what we're doing here. She did get to hold Amber, mm-hmm. and in the interview said that she just remembers holding her, willing her to wake up, and, and oh. not believing that any of it was real. Todd was also in the hospital. Um, he was hospitalized, but he was a survivor. According to the interview that Stacy conducted with the ID channel, when she entered the room, Todd could not look at her. He told her that he woke up to Amber saying, Daddy, Daddy, and he realized there was smoke everywhere. He told Amber to get out of the house. 
and he ran to the twins' room. He said the heat was so intense that he grabbed the foot of a teddy bear and ran out the door, and that's when he realized it was a teddy bear. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Proceed. Stacy wanted to know why he did not re-enter the house and try to save the girls, and he told her he tried, but the heat was too intense, and he could not get back in. On that same day, she's staring out the hospital window, and she said in her interview that she recalls Todd asking her, what's wrong? And she's like, um, um well, sir, we just lost all of our children. And he allegedly said, don't be sad. We will have more kids. We'll have another Cameron, Carmen and Amber. She was devastated that he would say that on that same day that the children had died. She said that she never said a word. She was just in shock and she stared back out at the window. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Stacy. She did not have an easy childhood. At four years old, her mother was strangled to death by her stepfather. Oh, my God. But she did have remaining relatives that took care of her. Todd had an equally uneasy childhood. His mother had abandoned him when he was an infant, and he was raised by his militant father, Jean, who remarried a woman named Eugenia. So, Jean and Eugenia. Nice. They lived in poverty, and Todd struggled in school. He even began sniffing paint in his early teen years. From the article in The New Yorker, it said, Quote, when he was 17, Oklahoma Department of Human Services evaluated him and reported he likes girls, music, fast cars, sharp trucks, swimming, and hunting in that order. Well, all right then. I mean, you just described every single one of my four boys. I was going to say that sounds like in, a pretty normal. <laughs> you throw in sport, bam, every teenage boy that I've ever uh -huh. known. <laughs> yeah, I see no problems yet. Right, right. Willingham dropped out of high school and was over time arrested for, among other things, driving under the influence, stealing a bike, and shoplift shoplifting. So petty theft things. And that was a quote from the article. The two met while Stacy was a senior in high school in 1988, and Todd was 19. She was working at a Dairy Queen, and Todd approaches her. He says, are you Stacy?" She says, yeah. Don't you drive that white pickup? She says, yeah. Don't you live in those apartments? On some street. She's like, Yeah. He said, my brother wants to ask you out, but he's too shy. Do you want to go on a date with him? His brother was in the vehicle. Oh, okay. Hey. She's like, why doesn't he ask me? She's like, oh, he's just too shy. So she's like, sure. I'll, you know, see what this fella's all about. So the three of them actually meet up that night, and it was Todd who ends up talking to her more than, than the brother. Than the brother. And they hit it off right away. And later, she discovers that all of that was a lie. And that Todd's brother never in, ne knew her or never attended on asking her out. Oh. Todd had done his recon work and wanted to ask her out. It was a little low-key stalkerish. A little I'm bit. not going to lie. And she she said in the interview that she feels that that was red flag number one and she ignored <laughs> it. I, I agree. But she's a senior in high school. She's 17, 18 years right, old. Right, right. You know, she's flattered. Mm -hmm. And a lot of reports identified him as being having the Willingham look to him which apparently included being handsome i'm not knocking the guy but not my type i don't mm. i don't see that i'll have to see a face yeah and we'll post pictures and nah i wouldn't go that far no no but he could be quite a charmer so that was said too a lot she's kind of reflecting during this interview wondering if he'd been following and watching her stacy was 18 when she became pregnant with amber and on todd's 20th birthday she told him the news according to stacy todd said you better not be Kids and a wife are not the life that I want. Stacy recalls that Todd never pushed her, hit her, or anything until after she became pregnant with Amber. 
Oh, wow. And that's when the abuse had started. In the Evil Lives Here episode, Stacy tells of Todd's abuse. And so you can watch that to get the full versions of it. Mm-hmm. He would punch her. He would kick her. He would slap her. He would degrade her. He called her a whore a lot. They both went back and forth with what I would consider very immature accusations given their age, mm-hmm. you know, um, of accusing one another of like having cheating affairs. And, mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. When she became pregnant with the twins, Amber was only one years old and he didn't, he didn't want Amber her to begin with. He certainly didn't want twins. Uh, he beat her with the telephone so hard that the phone broke. Oh my gosh. And, when she was pregnant? Yep. And he repeatedly kicked her in the stomach and you can oh. see in the, she did start bleeding really heavily she was pretty bloody and he just put her in the bathtub and just left her there oh my Um, god mm -hmm. so not an awesome situation yeah todd is dead to me already (laughs) that's horrible how you have no soul if you can be a pregnant woman i'm sorry i agree the trial by fire movie which i said earlier was based on the new york uh new yorker article Uh uh-huh they portray Stacy in a bit of a harsher life, as if to say that she was the more short-tempered one, that she accused him of cheating a lot. Todd was not a good or faithful husband. They fought constantly. The situation was not healthy. Stacy was the one who worked outside of the home at a bar owned by her brother called Some Other Place, which I kind of like. Nice I do job. like it. And Todd didn't, did not work. He was an unemployed mechanic. And it so got, he didn't work and he beat her. Yeah. And it sounds like he went out a lot and partied. She was taking care of the kids a lot. I don't, like I said, the situation was not good. No, it doesn't sound good. Judging faces on right now. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. Well, and that's where the town goes with it too. Okay. It's, it's, he's not painting a lovely picture for he himself. He's not off to a good start. No, no, definitely not. But she gets to the point where, and, and he is cheating, he was cheating on her with a neighbor, with another girl in town. It gets to the point where she realizes, hold on, I don't need your ass. Mm -hmm. I'm working, paying the bills. I'm doing a majority of the caretaking for the kids. Like, what are you contributing to me at all? Yeah, besides annoying me for sex a lot. And then you get me knocked up and then you Get pissed about it? Yeah. I'm good. Right, right, right. Probably can find better mm-hmm. Willingham. Yeah, that's that's where she's at at this point in time. Willingham. <laughs> so she tells him after the holidays, this is 1991, after the holidays, she would be filing for divorce. Just kind of like, I'm done with your lying, cheating ass. Yeah. How did he accept that? Well, in the interview that she does with Evil Liz, Lives Here, she recalls that he she expected explosive Todd mm-hmm. to happen. And he was strangely calm. And she recalled on the morning of the fire that she was changing one of the twins' diapers and just kind of playing with her a little bit, kind of getting her back, nestled back into sleep because it was early and letting him know, I'm going to go Christmas shopping for the kids. And he was just standing in the doorway staring at them, not saying anything, just staring at them. And now reflecting back, she's like, was he thinking about doing something That was eerie to her in hindsight. Yeah, I could see that looking back after everything happened. Yeah. She also said that just before the house fire, Todd and a friend had brought in a second refrigerator into the already cramped kitchen. There was no good place for it, so they placed it directly in front of the back door. 
So you can't use the back door anymore. That's odd. Yeah. The day he was released from the hospital, he wanted to go to the house. And they were like, both him and, um, or him, both Stacy and I believe his parents were with them as well. Were either, it was either his parents or her parents. I'm sorry, I didn't make note of it in my notes. I wasn't even sure I was going to tell this part, but I mean, go into that much detail about it. But they were like, I don't know if we should, you know, they're still investigating Todd. I don't, should we be there? And he's like, I just, I just have to see it. So while they're there and they're walking through the debris, he grabs his cologne and he starts, and this is according to Stacy in the interview, he starts just dabbing it all over the house and she they're all like this is weird like Todd what are you doing you know and he said this was the twins favorite the twins loved the smell of this I just I I know they loved it I just have to leave it here and she's like they're like we probably shouldn't be doing this so there's that yeah so that happens very odd behavior the next day he was released from the hospital the next day okay that's so weird I'm sorry yeah that is a little suspicious so, so suspicious. Let's, I'm going to move on. I'm going to talk about now the fire has happened. Uh, the three sweet babies have passed away. We're going to talk about the investigation. The police interviewed Stacy and Todd on December 31st and took statements from them. Asked them if there had been a fight the night before. Stacy said no, they had not fought. Stacy told the police that Todd loved his children and that they were spoiled rotten. Now, later in the interview, Stacy actually says... The night before, they were fighting about the divorce. Todd was saying that something along the the lines of that he wasn't going to live without her. Okay. There were, in in the interview in 2020, she says that there was now, she's now saying there is a fight. There was a fight before, but to the police, she says no, there was no fight. Todd loves his children. They were spoiled rotten. Todd explains again to the police that he woke to Amber saying, Daddy, Daddy, he put on his pants did not realize that she had even been in the room. He, Amber Amber had, had actually room. been in his room. We will get to how we know that in a minute. Okay. He thought maybe the fire had started from the twins' bedroom because he could see bright lights in there and hear cracking and popping coming from there. They used three space heaters to heat the home. And he sat in one of those space heaters was in the twins' room, was in the girls' room. They all, all three of the girls shared a room. But he said in his interview to the police, I taught Amber not to play with it. So the police asked him, did you put your shoes on before you ran outside? He said, no, he just ran outside. They interviewed neighbors and firemen about Todd's disposition the day of the fire. The interviews were consistent that Todd was screaming things like, my babies." And then he'd fall silent. As soon as the fireman showed up, he screamed that his daughters were inside and one radioed to the other trucks to step on it because now they know there's children inside. Get here quickly. Todd grew more hysterical and a police chaplain named George Monaghan led him to the back of the fire truck and tried to calm him down. And he told him, my little girl was trying to wake me up and tell me about the fire. He said, adding, I couldn't get my babies out. A fireman came out with Amber in his arms. She was given CPR. And Willingham, who, keep in mind, at this time is 23 years old, and he's a robust dude, ran to see her. He became more panicked at seeing her. I mean, that's traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely. And he started, suddenly started to head towards the house and go towards the baby's room. And it took Chaplin that I mentioned earlier, George Monningham, and another fireman restrained him. And he told the police, we had to wrestle with him and then handcuff him for his and our protection. 
He had, he, Monaghan later told the police, I received a black eye. So, I mean, he's fighting. Yeah. He's fighting trying to get to his babies. Genuine trauma response. Right. Right. And that is all what was taken upon the initial police reports. Okay. One of the first firemen at the scene told investigators that they knew they had to hold Todd back because based on what they could see from the fire, it would have been crazy to try to go into that house. So it was like the whole fu- the whole house was... Yeah, a majority. Yeah, it was, a, it was like one half of it. The house is very small. It's like 970 square feet. Oh, wow. Or something okay. like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Cameron and Carmen were found in their bedroom. Amber was actually in the master bedroom. Smoke inhalation was the cause of all three deaths, although Cameron and Carmen, the twins, had sustained significant burns. The community came together and raised money for funeral expenses. Now, at some point in time, the prosecutor for the case does make statement that he felt that Todd, when the family, when the community raised money and whatnot, that Todd acted like he had just won the lottery because the community saw him out at the bar drinking and playing darts in the days after the fire. Now, keep in mind, this is something that Todd did regularly. Okay. And alcohol abuse was prevalent for him. Possibly a coping mechanism or possibly I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Look at it either way. I'm not here to, to say which one it was. But that's what made, this is a small, small town, made them so, question. So he did that before too though, right? He did. He, so he, this is not a change th- of this behavior. Is thing. This is a, that's where I said possible coping mechanism moving doing what I Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know would I do it no but I also don't go and drink daily either right if I was under if I drank daily and I was under high stress would I still need to drink yeah probably for sure or I didn't know how to cope with my emotions in a healthy way and I didn't know I'm starting to drink Mm -hmm. yeah well, so I'll, many, throw, I'll throw that bone out there, sure. Yeah, so many different avenues that, mm-hmm. you know, this could go. Yeah. So the fire investigators, this is a very important piece, came in four days after the fire had taken place. Todd had actually agreed to allow arson invest an, an arson investigation because he wanted answers for why his children were taken from him. So he's like, yeah, bring in the arson investigators. So our arson investigators are Douglas Fogg, he was the assistant fire chief in Corsicana, and he conducted, like, the initial inspection. Mm-hmm. Now, Fogg was a veteran. He even got a couple of Purple Hearts. He grew up in Corsicana, and by the time he investigated the Willingham fire, he had been investigating, as he liked to call it, the beast, which is the fire, mm-hmm. as a certified arson investigator for 20 years. So he knows what he's doing, maybe. Yeah. One would think. One would. I would say that assume. for his time in 1991, he was he was an expert mm-hmm. in the field. He was then joined by another of Texas' leading arson investigators, Manuel Vesquez, who had previously worked in army intelligence. As a matter of fact, and he had like these poetic sayings, like, and he actually testified to this. Fire does not destroy evidence, it creates it. And the fire tells the story, I am just the interpreter. Oh, so he is, like he's painting like a deep picture of the fire. All I could think of actually when I read that was like, are you Kurt Russell from Backdraft? Yeah. Yeah. Are you being all handsome and philosophical over here? Flowing hair. Oh, yes. Loved that I make love to the fire. Yes, yes. The fire speaks to me. Yeah. It tells me 
He has a relationship with the fire. Yeah. But I'm going to point out that that's not scientific. <laughs> that's true. This is true. Very philosophical, scientific, no. Mm-hmm. According to the New Yorker, Vasquez was asked under oath whether he had ever been mistaken in a case. And he said, quote, if I have, sir, I don't know. It's never been pointed out. It's like, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I think I'm pretty damn good because no one has challenged me. Thank you very much. I like that answer. Yeah. So these two make their way through the home, starting with the least damaged areas. They're photo documenting everything and doing a video. They actually entered through the back door, which uh, which leads directly into the kitchen. And remember, I had said that that refrigerator was placed there. They had just enough room to get in and out through that. They find that the kitchen just has smoke and heat damage, which indicates that it did not start there. The home is only 970 square feet. They walk from the kitchen into what was described as a central corridor. So basically like a huge, uh, it, not huge, I mean, it's 970 square feet, but a big like hallway, like this mm-hmm. house is a big hallway. And so they've got this central corridor and you walk past a utility room and the master bedroom, which again just had smoke and heat damage and they follow it to there's as they go down there's the living room on the right and the girls bedroom on the left and then the corridor actually ends and leads to the front porch which is a cement porch okay what they start to notice is there's a deep charring along the base of the walls because gases become buoyant when they're heated so flames ordinarily go upward but These two investigators observed that the fire had burned extremely low down and that there were char patterns on the floor shaped like puddles. So they follow what they call a, quote, burn trailer, which is the path that is etched by the fire. Basically, like, let's follow this fire burn, Uh which led from the hallway into the children's bedroom. Irregularly shaped char patterns were on the floor. So it's possible that a flammable or combustible liquid doused on a floor would cause a fire to concentrate in these kinds of pockets. They call them pore patterns or puddle configurations. Now this fire was intense. It burned through layers of carpeting, plywood, flooring, everything. Even the metal springs under the children's bed had turned white, which is a sign of intense, intense heat radiating Mm. beneath them. Seeing that the floor had some of the deepest burns, they deduced that it had been hotter on the floor than the ceiling, which, given that heat rises, was suspicious to them. So it's like it started... Does that indicate it started on the floor because it was so hot? That is what they're believing. Yep, it's on the floor. Even though heat rises, why is all the heat? heat Yeah, why is it on the floor causing these intense burn patterns when heat rises? Shouldn't it be on the ceiling? Mm -hmm. Now, Fogg examined a piece of glass from one of the broken windows, and it contained what fire investigators call "quote crazed glass," which. Forensic textbooks at the time had long described this effect as a key indicator indicator that a fire had burned fast and hot, meaning that it had been fueled by an, a liquid accelerant causing the glass to fracture because it just happened so fast. Okay. Okay. The men looked again at what appeared to be that burn trailer through the house. It went from, so that's, that is like literally them following the pattern of the fire. It went from the children's bedroom into the corridor and then turned sharply to the right and proceeded out the front door, like just suddenly turned sharp. Then, so they follow it. They're like, okay, now we're 
out the front door. Even the wood under the door's aluminum threshold was charred. So meaning it was even charred like outside into the, you know, you know what I'm talking about, about that aluminum fresh threshold that you stub your toe on when you're walking. Yeah, yeah. In, yep. a, in a doorway. Mm-hmm. So the wood under that was charred. And they're like, okay, what the hell? It had to have been charred because there was an accelerant underneath it. That's what they're they're thinking. Now, the porch I mentioned was concrete. Just outside the front door, the two notice that there's brown stains, which they said in their report were consistent with the presence of an accelerant. So the next thing that they discover is they're looking for soot marks. Okay. And usually for an arson investigation, if there's a soot mark that resembles a V shape, just um, Vivian, just so you guys can, if you can hear my difference sometimes in a microphone, V's and B's sound very similar. So V as in Vivian. So that kind of shape. When an object catches on fire, it creates this kind of pattern as heat and smoke radiate outward. So it starts at the bottom of the V and there and therefore can point to where the fire began. Mm-hmm. So like fire radiates outwards. It's this bottom of the V is pointing to right where it began. In the Willingham house, there were the distinct V's in the main corridor and in the hallway and the children's bedroom. So to them, there were multiple points of origin of the fire intentionally set by human hands. Me thinks this is suspicious. For sure. So now they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we got you. Yes. By now, as you may think, the investigators have a, in their opinion, clear vision of what happened. It seems to be so. Right. Someone had poured liquid accelerant throughout the children's room, even under their beds, and along the adjoining hallway and out the front door. And that... Also, that refrigerator in front of the back door seemed to be a deliberate attempt. such a suspicious thing, too, Mm -hmm. I have to say. Plus, somebody brings an extra refrigerator into my house and blocks a door, we're going to have problems. For sure. I don't care how much meat you need in freezer room. You're not putting an eyesore uh in my kitchen. For sure. So the investigators did collect samples of burned material from the house and sent them to the lab. Because, you know, it's pretty easy to detect a liquid accelerant. Yeah. The report comes back that the sample that had been taken by the threshold of the front door came back positive for mineral spirits, which is a popular ingredient in substances like charcoal fluid lighter. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like that description of mineral spirits. Mineral spirits. So that's the, but that's the only one that came back. It is. All the other samples from the house were not positive for an accelerant. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Only that one by the threshold. Now that the police have the report from the arson investigators confirming that it's arson, they began questioning people again. So they did confirm even though there was no other traces of the accelerant. Yes, because they did the walking. And they saw the pattern. Yep, their due diligence. They let the, the evidence, you know, it doesn't, fires don't destroy evidence, it creates it. The fire talked to them. Okay. Gotcha. They did their they did their video. They made love to the fire. They did. They... It told them all their secrets. Okay. There were three points of origin. This is arson. I'm starting to like vacillate with my emotions here. I thought we I had will a... be tugging you back and forth. Okay. I can I can feel the tug already. You're mm-hmm. gently tugging me. I am. It's gonna get a little harder, but I know you like it rough. So it's I do. Fine. I do. <laughs> so now that the police have this report, they're like, "Oh, we're gonna do more investigating here. We're gonna." 
ask the same people over again. You know, I mean, initially on that day one, you're just trying to get down information. Been there. I've done thousands of investigations and I absolutely know what this is like where initially you are just taking down as much information as you can. Then some more evidence comes in, like maybe, you know, positive drug test or whatever. And now you're like, I got to go ask some more questions. Yeah, yeah. That's what they did. Now, suddenly there are different statements being made to the investigators to what was originally told to police on the day of the fire. This is a small town, remember. People have been talking and Todd hasn't been acting like a man grieving. Right. Okay. He's Dart, doing darts. He is. Drinking. Drinking. Mm-hmm. Neighbors who had originally said like he was calling out for his babies claimed that he was too calm and that he did not be, appear concerned and was even cold. Now, even the chaplain, the fire marshal chaplain, that originally said that he had to hold him back out of the house, remember, and got the black eye, changed his recollection to say that he was too hysterical, like a woman in labor. And, and he had some suspicions right then and there that Todd had done something. So my question would be, and I'm sorry if I missed it, did they know about the report coming back? The people they were interviewing? When they asked him again, did they? The police did. The general public? Didn't. No. Okay, so they, the, the general public changed. Mm-hmm. That all the general public knows is that there's an arson investigation going on because the arson team is in there. Small towns are talking, you know, people mm-hmm. are talking, and Todd is, well, acting like Being Todd. Todd. Right. I just wondered if they, the people they questioned again and now knew they're, of now the they're concerned. But, but you sometimes can tell by the line of questioning, too. True. Let's throw that out there. True. I just, it makes you wonder because it, if mm-hmm. you set the tone that there's suspicion, then somebody might be well, like, you know, he does. Let me point this out. Gran, in his The New Yorker article, actually said this, and I quote, Dozens of studies have shown that witnesses' memories of events often change when they are supplied with new contextual information. Yes, that's exactly what I'm wondering. And it uh, went on to say that uh, Etel Dror, a cognitive psychologist who has done extensive research on eyewitness and expert testimony in criminal investigations, told Gran, quote, The mind is not a passive machine. Once you believe in something, once you expect something, it changes the way that you perceive information and the way your memory recalls it, end quote. Yes, right. I, I totally, yes. It's so true. It just, it's, it, once you set the tone, it would make somebody second guess. Was that genuine or was yeah. he overacting? Well you know those? what? Right. He yeah. punched me. Was he legitimately trying to get into show? his girls or was yeah. he being fakely hysterical? You know I'm trying what? to remain neutral here because I don't know what the heck's going to happen, but I'm For just sure. like, he did it, he didn't, he did it. And he doesn't have the, this is small town Texas, people. This man doesn't have a great reputation. He's a high school dropout. Yeah, he's already There's some stigma a, yeah. happening here, right? For both of them, for him and Stacy. He, he hasn't painted a great picture of himself he hasn't. thus far. Correct. So. On January 8th, 1992. A SWAT team surrounded the vehicle, this is only two weeks after the fire, that Stacy and Todd were driving and informed Todd that he's under arrest for murder. There is no motive for the case. The kids did have a life insurance policy that was recently paid up by Stacy's grandfather, but Stacy's grandfather was also the benefactor. So so they weren't getting it anything. Wasn't a, no, it wasn't a part of the case. It was just like, meh, what would the, what would the motive be? They had just plain determined that... Todd was a sociopathic murderer. I also want to point out that I forgot to put in my notes, but one of the the things that had changed was that Todd had moved. He had a vehicle that was in the driveway, and it was a nice like Camaro or something like that. I 
Oh, God, when you guys watch the movie, you're going to be like, that was not a Camaro Charnel. Sorry. <laughs> I do love cars, but I can't recall right now what it was. A very 1988 vehicle, okay? I mean, Camaro's <laughs> a good choice to go with. So. For the 80s? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, he actually, wait while waiting for the fire department, moved that vehicle out of the driveway, and it was later seen as him being more preoccupied with the vehicle. But he was actually like, no, I didn't want another explosion further harming my daughters. Okay. okay. All right. Like, so there's that. So just, just know that he did move the vehicle out of the driveway and it seemed like he was preoccupied with his precious vehicle. Okay. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. Yeah. It's there. It's there. Do with it what you want. Now, and I, I told you what his, his statement was like, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't want it catching on fire and exploding too. Okay. Mm, okay, Todd. I, I will say... In the Susan Powell case, the caseworker did that. She backed her her car? She backed her car up and parked it on the other side of the street for that same reason when she realized that the house was on fire. I will put that in his corner for now. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. halfway in his corner. Fair enough. It's like sitting there lightly. We're staring at the corner. Yeah. With it. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to hold it and look at the corner (laughs) with an eyebrow raise. That's right. So Stacy was telling the police that there was no way Todd had murdered their children. And she's devastated. She's like, I just buried my babies. And now you're arresting my husband for murder? She's in shock, you know. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine for her. And because these are multiple murders and he was being charged with murders, for the state of Texas, he's facing the death penalty. The police show her the evidence, the poor patterns, and she realizes, wait, these poor patterns are just like how he was spreading the cologne. That's what she says in the ID interview, that when they showed her the poor patterns, she felt like she had seen that before. And honestly, in the interview, they show a blueprint of the house with the poor, the alleged the poor patterns. patterns. And it's just like a bunch of... Like sporadic. It is. It's it's just a bunch of sporadic like pattern, like this way, that way, all this stuff. So, so even before watching Trial by Fire, and I had watched her interview first... I was kind of like, that's weird that she would recognize his motions from seeing yeah, a blueprint. Yeah. So I don't know. I but mean, that's it's a shot in the dark. But I, I mean, if, yeah. I guess if he was like walking around spraying it in a certain way, I guess that might trigger something. But maybe. But that's knows? what was said. I'm just, I'm giving y'all the information. There it is. So now the trial. He's arrested. Now here comes the trial. August of 2002. Arrested in January, trial in August. John Jackson was the assistant district attorney for Corsicana, for Corsicana and was assigned to prosecute Willingham's case. He told the Dallas Morning News that he believed Willingham to be an utterly sociopathic individual who deemed his children as an impediment to his lifestyle. So in other words, his ch- children were interfering with his beer drinking and dart throwing. That is in the article, the New Yorker article. I think I mentioned the the family was in poverty. Yes, you did. Of course, they cannot hire lawyers, so he got public defenders. So his lawyers were David Martin, a former state trooper, and Robert Dunn, a local defense attorney who represented everyone from murderers to divorce cases to petty theft, just a jack of all trades. And he claimed, in a small town, you'll starve to death if you specialize in one legality. Got it. They did try his public defenders and the prosecutor, Jackson, did try to get him to plead guilty for a life sentence so that he would, so they could take capital punishment off the table and he wouldn't do it. I won't plead guilty to something I didn't do. 
especially the murder of my own children. So they go to the full-on trial. Now, for the prosecution, the case was considered airtight. They had certified arson investigators' testimony, after all. The puddle patterns all over the place, there's no disputing that. The defense said, most of the time, defense attorneys know that their client is guilty as hell. And that is why Martin and Dunn, they believed he was guilty, and they were trying to get him to plead guilty Mm -hmm. and do life so that he wouldn't be sentenced to death. Vasquez, one of the arson investigators, testified that that he had done roughly 1,200 to 1,500 fires and quote, most of them were arson, which is oddly suspicious because the Texas State Fire Marshal's office typically found arson in only 50% of its cases. So here this guy has 12 to 1,500 and he's saying most of them are arson. That's just a statistic so that's for inaccurate. You. Yeah. Or he... If you look at the actual stats, it's inaccurate. Or he thinks everything he investigates is arson because that's what he's looking for. Ah, uh, noted. The neighbors that had changed their story had testified, but the defense had not pointed out the discrepancies between their first initial interview with the police and... they changed yep, their stories. And their being interviewed a little while later, how they changed their story. The defense did not point that out. Then, all of a sudden, the prosecution calls Johnny Webb, who was a prisoner in the same facility, the same jail, as Willingham. And he testified that shortly after getting put into the same cell as Willingham, Willingham just spilled his guts and told him he did it. Not sure if I trust you, Johnny Webb. Yeah. He just, out of the blue, said he... Set the fire and murdered his three children. Yeah, he wouldn't plead guilty. But he was going to go ahead and tell a perfect stranger immediately when we being put in the cell. Yeah, so that happened in the trial. I'm, I'm pulling feeling some um, sort of way. I'm yanking you. You really <laughs> are giving me a good yank right now. <laughs> I am. I told you. It's going to be rough. The prosecution wanted Willingham to fit the profile of a sociopath. And according to the New Yorker, they brought forth two medical experts to confirm the theory. Neither had met Willingham. Let me repeat that. Neither one of these medical experts had met Willingham. One of them was Tim Gregory, a psychologist with a master's degree in marriage and family issues. Same. That's me. (laughs) Same Z's. Yeah. Hi. (laughs) How are you? Hi. Yeah. He had previously gone goose hunting with Jackson, the prosecutor. Oh, wouldn't wouldn't you know it? And he hadn't published any research in the field of sociopathic behavior. Same dude, me neither, because I'm not an expert in it. His practice was devoted to family counseling. Have you been goose hunting, though? Cool, cool. You know, what I do with my husband (laughs) is none of your business. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll text you about it later. (laughs) They have a dude with a master's degree who specializes in marriage and family counseling testifying that an Iron Maiden poster that they found in the home meant that he's obsessed with violence and death. It is too... That's all they had and they had not talked to him. They had... No, no. They never met with him. What? That's crazy. They based it on his tattoos because he had skull and snakes on his tattoos and his music posters, Iron Maiden, Led Zeppelin. So the prosecutor had someone that he'd went goose hunting with Mm -hmm. come in, Mm -hmm. judge by appearance, Mm -hmm. and say, "Mm, Iron Maiden poster, violence and death. Now, this is 1991, okay? (sighs) Remember, to a conservative town 
if you listen to heavy metal, if you were anything involved with anything that they considered dark, snakes and skulls, then you were a sadist. You were a sociopath. You were a sadist. You are the devil. So a and this things. is Texas. First of all, he has not painted a, a good picture of himself, I will say. I mean, Absolutely. He, is, he was no. abusive to her, to his wife. We I, live I mean, in a small town. He's He is like a lot of some of the people we have worked with. Yeah. I mean, so, frankly. And there's some suspicious things about the whole scenario. Mm-hmm. But I am not okay with someone coming in and being like, oh, let me scope you. Oh, tattoos? Oh. Mm. Um, Never talked to you before. I've heard some things about you but and I'm, you have a poster. Yep. Like, that's not, oh my gosh, that's not okay. I'm going to testify on the stand in a capital punishment trial that I don't know you, I've never met with you, that because you have a Iron Maiden and Led Zeppelin poster and tattoos, you are a sociopath? You're, oh, my gosh. What they said about the Led Zeppelin poster, there's a picture of a fallen angel. They had seen that association many times with, with cult-type behaviors. It focuses on death and dying. Many times, individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic-type activities. I can't right now. He made all those assumptions by looking at photographs that were taken from Willingham's house. Yeah. The other medical expert was James P. Grigson. He is a forensic psychiatrist, and he testified so often for the prosecution in capital punishment cases that he had become known as Dr. Death. This reminds me of like the, a good old boys club or something. Oh, we are so deep into the good old boys club that we're sucking their dicks. I feel like we are balls deep into this club. We are. <laughs> We are because we're women, so even, that's the all we'd be good for in the good old boys club. I'm not even saying I feel like he didn't do it yet. I'm not right. there, but, but it's this just, is not okay. Exactly, that's exactly where I'm at. Like, but this whatever did happen, this shit wasn't okay. Not not okay at all. So you'll be actually happy to know that I won't bore you with the details. But this Grigson guy had put a lot of people, like because of his testimony, his quote expert testimony where he had never met with the person, a lot of people had been sentenced to death because of that. Eventually, the American Psychiatric Association took his license away. He was expelled. Wow. For quote, psychiatric diagnosis without first having examined the individuals in question and for indicating while testifying in court as an expert witness that he could predict with 100% certainty that the individuals would engage in future violent acts. End quote. From the New Yorker article. Yes. Thank you. It took till 1995. Which you know is three years after the Williams, okay. Williams I was ask trial. If it was after the trial, it was is... after the trial. Okay, but so he did get, he was allowed to testify during Willingham's trial, and eventually he did get disbanded. Yikes! I'm not liking what I'm hearing. Well, this is about to hurt you too. The defense for Todd Willingham, they called one witness. I was going to say, I if you can't afford an attorney, I'm not mm-hmm. sure how. How? And quite frankly, there was a quote that I read, and I can't remember what article it was from, so I'm not I'm not quoting it directly, but I do have all my sources cited in the show notes that basically said, yeah, I did as much work as I was paid to do. That's exactly what mm-hmm. I'm kind of getting at. Like, yeah. you're, you're going to get what you can't afford. Yeah. And right. I hate to say oh, it that way. I love way. how you put that, though. You wow. If you, okay. It. If right. you don't have the money to pay somebody to go above and beyond, they're mm-hmm. not probably they're going, going to. to. And I'm not knocking not, public right. defenders. I'm not. Some of them are really amazing. Yes, the I've seen some amazing work. But the people who were truly called to that profession have been amazing. 
but then there's also the other half. Yeah. So the baby, the babysitter that they called testified that Todd loved his kids and would never hurt them. They did have family members testify too. Um, Stacy uh, w- was able to testify. I mean, a lot of it was testifying about using his past against him. You know what I mean? It wasn't for the defense. It was the prosecution trying to paint a picture of Which what, they could. I mean. Right. Of what his past was like. Because there's no denying. He was a complete fuck up. Yeah. I mean, he was. And Stacy testified on stand. She lied about being in an abusive relationship with him. She said that. But, but she didn't believe he did it, right? Right. Okay. No. And she was testifying. He would not. She was his biggest supporter. He would not harm these children, she lied about, you know, the, the punching, the kicking, even though there were other witnesses saying, yeah, we hear him fight all the time. Yeah, I see bruises on her. And she was asked under oath, you know, why would people say that about you? And she's like, I, I don't know. That's what, you know, what she had. I Keep in mind, though, she's a battered woman and she doesn't know how, what way this is going to go. Yeah. Can I ask, um, was there any indication he'd ever physically harmed the kids at all, or was no. it just her nope. that he was? Never. Okay. Never in anything that I read, and nothing that, that Stacy herself, even years later, has ever said that he had harmed one of the kids. No. It was only her. I looked for that. I was trying. But no. you couldn't find anything nope. about it? No. There was nothing. Like I said, Stacy never wav- wavered during the trial for her support for Todd. The trial only took two days. The jury only took one hour. One Hour. 40 minutes, actually. Todd Willingham was guilty and sentenced to death. Wow. That quickly, huh? Yep. That quickly, they could decide that a man was to be sentenced to death. Though only the babysitter had appeared as a witness for the defense during the main trial, family members were able to testify during the penalty phase, asking the jury to spare his life and take the death penalty off. When Stacy was at, was on the stand, Jackson... The prosecutor grilled her about the significance of um, Will- Willingham's tattoo of a skull encircled by some kind of serpent. And Stacy's like, it's just a tattoo. And he goes, he just likes skulls and snakes. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah. sir. Right. That's She's what like, I'm saying. He just had them. He just got a tattoo on him. She's like, what the fuck? But within a year of the trial being over, Stacy divorced him and moved on. She had met a man that did not physically abuse her. Okay. I mean, I don't hate that. Yeah. Because yeah. she She deserved to. to yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. That They were not good together. They were young and they were toxic. Yeah. And then now she has this trauma with him, you know, associated with him. I'm absolutely. Which I don't forward. know that you ever, you know, recover from. I don't know that yeah. you do either. She did not come visit him anymore. But she still maintained his innocence. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So She's she, moved on. So she, even though... She moved on and is, doesn't want connection with him. She's still saying, I, he didn't do this. Right. I believe he didn't do yep. this. So now he's in prison on death row. And watch the movie Trial by Fire because the directors do such an amazing job at showing how heartbreaking that is. Okay. And I'm going to have to watch this. It's intense. So in 1996, he did file an appeal. Um, he actually filed an appeal before then too, but lost all of them. But in 96, he filed an appeal of inefficient representation. Yes, counsel. And they did give him a new court-appointed attorney based on the fact that his attorney only called one witness for him for his defense. So he gets Walter Reeves. And honestly, this dude tried he tried for years. He he is the public defender that you would want. Okay, gotcha. Yep. 
He did really good. He prepared for him a a state writ of habeas corpus, which frequently takes more than 10 years. The writ is the most critical stage. It's where a prisoner can introduce new evidence detailing things like prejudice testimony, unreliable medical experts, and bogus scientific findings, or no scientific findings. However, like Willingham, many people on death row lack the resources to track down new witnesses or dig up fresh evidence. So it was kind of like a, we're going to try. Yeah. But what happens is in 1999, a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert, she's 47 years old. She was a divorced mother of two teenagers. She had recently learned that her ex-husband and the father of her children was dying of cancer. And a friend referred her to a program where you can write to inmates on death row. Oh, interesting so, program. Yeah, she was in kind of a, she's a, she's a playwright and a teacher. So she has a soft heart. You sure, know, um, sure. And. Like, she, I don't hate the program. I mean, no. it's a very. Yes, yep. It's a pen pal mm-hmm. relationship. So she writes Todd Willingham. And at one point, they, they corresponded quite a bit. And he asks her to come visit. Like, he explains the only visitors he has at this point are his mom and step, or his stepmom and his dad. And they live. Four or five hours away in Oklahoma. So they so don't come often. Yeah, probably. and they're older. And so it's harder for them to come. And so she does. She starts visiting with him. And it's a very appropriate relationship. It is not just because she's a female, don't go there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sexual. We're not doing Dorth- Dorothea in prison. We are not. We are not. Finding love. <laughs> yep. No, they're, they didn't. Sparks didn't fly that way. I mean, I think that he ends up loving her, certainly. But she, him, through their friendship, not in a romantic way but she starts looking into his case it took him a little while to open up and even talk about it but she starts looking into his case and she even went as far as going to the court to get all the case documents and she remembered the county clerk being like why do you want to review those those documents like that's such a cut and dry case why would you want to read about a murderer that murdered his three children and she's just like, nah, give, give me, me the a- documents. Exactly. <laughs> Quiet. Zip your lip and give me the documents. Come on, Karen. Give them. <laughs> right. Hand them over. Right. Right away, she finds all kinds of discrepancies, like how the neighbors went from he was a concerned dad to he, you know, he, they and he retracted was, their yeah, statements. And he was. I do want to point out the the Mrs. Barbie girl. Mm-hmm. She originally said he tried to get back into the home. He broke the window. Tried to get back into the home. But then later was like, no, he didn't try to get back in the home. But remember, she left to go call 911. So there was a good part of time where she was no longer even present. So I do want to point that off that out too. Thanks a lot, Barbie. Right. Remember how Todd had said he thought that possibly the fire could have started from the space heater. They used space heaters. Yeah. Now in testimony it was it was testified that the knob on the space heater was in the off position but it was significantly damaged so there's questions about whether or whether not it was actually it was really off. off all the way oh. or if it hadn't been possibly turned on been messing messed with by amber who was awake she's reading through elizabeth is reading through all of this stuff she even went to corsicana to talk to people herself she found that most of the people in the town thought that he was guilty, but there were some, like his old probation officer and the juvenile judge that oversaw his case, you know, when he was in trouble as a juvenile, that said, actually, he never displayed any sociopathic behavior, and he was really one of their favorite kids to work with. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Others would say, well, that's because he was really charming. But it's like when they're like, no, so sorry, but the probation, are not charming. they aren't in this. <laughs> but so he was enjoyable to work with. Yeah. He didn't give them any problems. They did not appear to be sociopathic to them. She starts looking into ways to help him. He had been appealing for the last seven years and he was almost up on his appeals because you only get so many. And they'd been a de- they had been denied every time. Eventually, she even returned to Corsicana to interview Stacy. They met at a bed and breakfast. And she did an audio recording of the conversation. Stacy had said nothing unusual was going on. They hadn't fought before the fire. They were just preparing for Christmas. It was two days before Christmas. Now, although Vasquez, the arson expert, had recalled finding the space heater off, Stacy was sure that at least on the day of the incident, which was winter, it had been on. She said, and I quote, I remember turning it down, she recalled. I always thought, gosh, could Amber have put something in there? She said more than once in the interview that she had caught Amber putting things too close to it constantly. Oh, gosh. End quote. Willingham had not treated her well, and she told Elizabeth She was that. open about that. But so was Willingham. Todd was open with Elizabeth about what a shithead of a cheating, horrible husband he was. His years between 1992 and 1999 in prison had really left him with a lot of time to reflect. And I'm sure death row will do that to you. Oh, for sure. And he made no qualms about it, that he was absolutely a rotten. A cheater, abusive. So he admitted all of that. Yes, that he, yeah, that he hit her. She says in the interview with Elizabeth Gilbert, I don't think that he did it. And she was crying when she said it. So this is 1999. Elizabeth even met with Johnny Webb. Remember Johnny Webb? Oh, I remember Johnny Webb. Mm-hmm. In early 2000. So he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, we spoke through a food slot that um, Willingham had broke down and told him that he intentionally set the house on fire. And she's like, um, I just, I find it hard really to believe. Though? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's like, well, yeah, he'd even said that Stacy had hurt one of the kids and the fire was set to cover up the crime. But the autopsies, however, on the girls had revealed no bruises, no signs of trauma, nothing on the children's bodies whatsoever, just burn marks and smoke inhalation. So she's like, yeah, okay. Now, shortly after his meeting with Elizabeth in March 2000, just after, Webb unexpectedly sent Jackson, the prosecutor of the case, a motion to recant testimony, declaring, and I quote, Mr. Willingham is innocent of all charges, end quote. What? Willingham's lawyer was not informed of this development. And soon afterwards, without explanation, Webb recants his recantation. That is really suspicious. No. The author, Gran, of the the New Yorker article, Trial by Fire, interviewed Webb himself because he was released from prison about two years ago. This article was written in 2009, so he was released about 2007. He's like asking about the turnabout. Like, why would you confess? Like, what's going on? Like, why would he confess to a virtual stranger and then you do what you did? He's like, listen, it's very possible that I misunderstood what he said. And he admits that being locked up in the cell makes you kind of crazy. His memory was in bits and pieces 
He's like, I was on a lot of medication at the time. Everyone knew that. And then he says, the statute of limitations has run out on perjury, hasn't it? It's what he said to this guy writing this article. Oh my gosh, this is so suspicious. The other thing is, is he suffered, unfortunately, from, Webb suffered significantly from mental illness. And at the time that he came forward, and keep in mind that Jackson knew all this, him suffering from mental illness, he had a rap sheet. Jackson's like, listen, we didn't, it's not like he had um, any real motive to make a statement like this if it wasn't true. We didn't cut him any slack. That's what he says initially at the time when it was being questioned of like, why are you having this random prisoner or jailer testifying? But in 1997, he was supposed to be in for 15 years. They're like, we didn't cut him any slack. He's got 15 years. In 1997, five years after Willingham's trial, Jackson, the prosecutor, urged the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles to grant Webb parole. Quote, I asked them to cut him loose early. Jackson told this to the Grand, the writer of this article. And the reason Jackson said was that Webb had been targeted by a brotherhood that was in prison. And Mm. so they wanted him granted parole to get, you know, to keep him safe, get him out of there. And within two months of his release, he was caught with cocaine and turned back into prison. Oh, wow. Which he was then imprisoned until 2007. It is very... But isn't that weird? Weird. You're five years. You were or you were originally given 15 years. So you're and you like, get out that we early on parole. We didn't bribe him with an earlier sentence. He didn't testify for us on bribery. But then five years later, you let it, you require, or you recommend that he be released on parole. So suspicious. That's weird to me. So Elizabeth and Walter Reeves are making really good headway. All right. They've got all this information to tackle the fact that the prosecutor's case rested almost entirely on the testimony of two arson investigators with zero science at all and more on instinct. So they're like, what we need is an arson expert to challenge all of this. Yes. Right. And it takes them a long time, but they do get it in January, 2004. However, that's about the same time, whereabouts the same time, that Todd Willingham got his execution date, which was set no. for February 17th, 2004 at 6 p.m. Oh, my gosh. So here it is January, and they're like, we've got to move on this guy. They get a hold of Dr. Gerald Hurst. He is an acclaimed scientist and fire investigator. He, I, When I say that he is qualified, I'm talking a Ph.D. in chemistry and was literally spent the first half of his career working with the military, researching explosives and the behavior of fire. He was helping the military come up with non-nuclear bombs. Okay, so this man loves him some fire and knows him some fire. beyond brilliant. Okay, and he works in the scientific method of facts, not generalizations, and not instinct. Okay. And he does, has done extensive research with fire and chemicals his entire career. So that's why they wanted him because I'm going to tell you about a couple of cases that he really helped with and that's how he's he's building built throughout the 90s. He built quite a reputation for himself because he got to a point where he realized, "Oh my god, why am I helping build things? Why am I doing this research and helping build things that are killing people?" Oh, and he so. kind of changes his tactics and he he um came up with a bunch of a lot of his stuff through his research is patented. So he has royalties from his 
patents. So this, this man's legit. This man is as legit as they come. And as a matter of fact, he's working cases like arson cases. He's second opinioning arson cases pro bono because he makes so much money on his royalties from his patents. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I should point out that the scientific method to fire investigation was not written into law in 1991 when Willingham's case was being done. So arson investigators, a lot of them just had a high school diploma. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. That is terrifying. They, yes. They did not have to follow any sort of scientific method. There was no there was no guide for them really to follow. Just the good old boys club. Mm-hmm. So they could walk in and be like, yep, looks like somebody started this. Oh, yeah. Well, here's, here's what Hearst has to say. He starts reviewing the case, and he's like, um, hold on a second. First of all, this was actually a quote from him that I wanted to put in here. I liked this. People investigated fire largely with a flat earth approach. And he told the writer, Gran, this quote. It looks like arson, therefore it's arson. I mean, my view is that you have to have a scientific basis. Otherwise, it's no different than witch hunting. Absolutely. I get it. End quote, I get what he's, I'm feeling what he's saying. In 1998, he saved a woman from the death penalty due to a fire, her 17-month-old son dying, and she was charged. It was charged as arson. He was able to, to point out science behind his knowledge to show how the arson investigation, although true for their tactics that they used, were not factual. Wow. So you couldn't say beyond a reasonable doubt that this fire was started by this woman and it saved her. I there like that he shifted that. the use of his skills like Me for the too. greater good. And pro bono at yeah, it. it's like Me I'm going to give back it's after. like he's repenting. Yeah. yeah. I dig it. I liked that. I like it. Not only do most arson investigators only have a high school education, in most states in order to be certified, investigators had to take a 40-hour course on fire investigation and pass a written exam, which, by the way, is like the same for a real estate exam. That's what you have to do for a real estate license. The bulk of an investigator's training came on the job, learning from old timers in the field who passed down a body of wisdom about the telltale signs of arson, even though a study in 1977 warned that there was nothing in the scientific literature to substantiate their validity, end quote. As Hearst looks through the records, this is what he finds. First of all, he had a problem with the dude saying that nearly all of the cases he's looked at have been arson. Because he's like, bitch, please. Strike one. Mm -hmm. Only 50% or so should be. Now let's talk about the liquid accelerant burning hot and fast. Hearst is like, I'm sorry, but that's an old wives' tale by arson sleuth. That was sleuths that was used for decades. That's not true. Experiments have since proven that wood and gasoline burn at the same temperature. The arson investigators had also said that doors aluminum threshold. Okay, remember I was talking about that. That there was charring underneath. Yes, and that it had melted. So they had said, "quote The only thing that can cause that to react is an accelerant." Hearst disagreed. He's like, "Um, "I'm sorry, but." A natural wood fire can reach temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, far hotter than the melting point for aluminum alloys, which range from 1,000 to 1,200 degrees. So he's like, you're trying to say this must be arson, that an accelerant had to have happened because that aluminum was melted? I'm saying, no, no, the melting point for aluminum is not nearly as substantial as how hot a natural wood fire can get. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of disproves that because the heat was at the bottom. 
Like, right. right. Well, let's talk about that wood charring underneath that the arson investigators are saying in order, you know, the aluminum melted and the wood was charred underneath. Uh-huh. So the arson investigators are saying that means accelerant was poured underneath that aluminum. I mean, it was it was on there. Mm-hmm. It, it dripped underneath it. Hurst points out, no, no. If there was accelerant underneath that aluminum threshold, it requires oxygen to breathe. And it doesn't get oxygen under there. So it, in fact, would not burn. The fire would have extinguished if it had been, if an accelerant had been under, had dripped under that threshold. It would have been extinguished by the accelerant instead of accelerated because of the lack of oxygen at the point that it hits the chemical. My head is exploding right now. I know. Whereas old school theory, I'm not knocking them, the old arson and experts at this yeah, point. Yeah, because as you're explaining it to me and I don't know anything, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right. At the beginning. At the beginning, when, I, when you're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that's, see, I get mm-hmm. it. But this man who has done numerous studies in scientific research is like, no, actually, that is a, a misnomer. Accelerants trapped underneath like that, it goes out because it needs oxygen to breathe. It doesn't explode. It would not char. The charring and the melting happen can happen naturally from a hot wood-burning fire, not an accelerant fire. Liquid accelerants can no more burn under an aluminum threshold than can grease burn in a skillet even with a loose-fitting lid. End quote. That's what Hearst put in his report. Hearst then examined the claim about the brown stains that were on that cement porch because they were saying... Factually, this was a liquid accelerant. Hearst did his own experiments. This is actually even even in the Trial by Fire movie, where if you put an accelerant uh, like gasoline or charcoal lighter fluid, whatever, on a concrete surface and you light it on fire, all that's left is like a little bit of ashes. It's not There's not charring. And he did this experiment many times with different kinds of liquid accelerants, and the result was always the same. Only smudges of soot were left. Brown stains were common in fires. They were usually composed of rust or gunk from charred debris that had mixed with water from the fire hoses. Okay. So there's a possible alternative hypothesis for, and, and actually as a matter of fact, I would even go to say the way he has retested this on the same type of surface and there has not been brown stains, but the fact that we know that water hoses mixed with charred debris and rust and gunk can li- those. leave those like stains. Like we've seen those at other fires before. Uh, okay. I To me, okay. He's proved his point, it right. seems. Right. Whereas they're saying, nope, that was accelerant. The other thing that he had a problem with is he's like, listen, I have a problem with the fact that you are you are insinuating that this man used accelerant all the way out his front door and the neighbors never saw that. Also, I will point out there was never a gasoline can found ever anywhere. For Hearst, he's like, first of all, where's the, you know, where's, where's the, the gasoline source can? of, of yeah. the accelerant? Accelerant. But also, in order for him to get it out the door and onto the concrete porch, people would have saw him pouring that. No one reported that. Now, another critical piece of evidence is the crazed glass theory. They attributed this to the rapid heating from the fire fueled by an accelerant. Remember, like it it burns hot and fast Mm -hmm. is what they're saying from an accelerant and it makes that crazed glass. Unfortunately for them, Hearst knew of several instances and he names one in his report 
of a November of 1991 where a team of fire investigators had inspected 50 houses in the hills of Oakland, California, which were taken by brush fires. And we know that. It's not an accelerant. It was a brush fire that started that. In dozens of those houses, there was that same webbing, that crazed glass, on the windows. Because, and Hearst demonstrated this several times, when you heat glass up, it makes no changes. But when you blast it suddenly with cold, something cold, like water from a fire hose, it spider web That's cracks. That's how it gets the crazed. Mm-hmm. And there's your crazed glass. Now, I have accidentally done that before. I have taken a dish out of the stove, out of the oven. It was too still too warm when I put it in the refrigerator, and it's cracked. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is that crazed glass is not an indication of arson. That's an indication of... Uh, Temperature you know, change. Yes. It does not mean that a liquid accelerant hit that window and then the fire burned hot and fast and caused it. He was like, it's actually an old wives' tale. That's what Hearst said. Sounds like a lot of their theories were. Right. Let's talk about that burn trailer, okay? The burn patterns, the pore patterns, the, the V-shape, okay? The multiple points of er- origin, the burning underneath the children's beds. Hearst ex- explains, for all that, Hearst actually refers to a case that happened in 1990 where a man was on death row for setting a fire that killed six people. So he is on death row for for the murder charge of six people because of the same, it's so eerily similar, the burn trailer patterns, the V shape, all of this absolutely has to be arson evidence, okay, of where you're letting the fire tell the story. What this person did, this actually is called the Lime Street Experiment. It happened in Jacksonville, Florida, and they actually used a condemned house and they furnished it exactly like the house that was on trial for, you know, that was similar to the house from the guy who was on trial. Uh His name was uh, Gerald Lewis. All right. He's the was the survivor and he was the one on death row for this. So they take this condemned house. They completely mimic what Lewis's house was like and they He said the fire had started on the couch, and they're just like, nope, no way, not with the way the patterns are, there's no way. So they set up this experiment, they start the fire on the couch, sure as shit, that fire. They had cameras up, they watched the whole thing, and they found in that house the, quote, classic signs of arson. The low burns around the walls and floor, the pore patterns, the puddle configurations, and the burn trailer running from the living room into the hallways. Wow. Yep. So they're like, they learned a lot from this experiment. And as a matter of fact, the people who funded it, it cost like $20,000. The people who funded it were actually the prosecution. And they realized that they had just helped the defense. And that man was not, he was so saved. They, he so, was not prosecuted. Wow. So they thought they were going to prove this, like, yep. this is crap. Yep. And they ended up saving him. They did. From- they ended up realizing, holy cow, all of the things that we thought were clear indications of arson. They're not. They're not. Wow. Yep. Thank God they did it, though. Oh, yeah. And they learned a lot about fire. You know, in just the the way that it it is. Going back to... But we are now in a small town that didn't have that That did not have that knowledge. Didn't have that, yep. The fire, what within minutes of that experimental house, after the fire was extinguished in that 
Lewis, the, the Lime Street experiment house, okay? The investigators inspected the hallway in the living room, and on the floor were irregularly shaped burn patterns that perfectly resembled poor patterns and puddle configurations. It turned out that these were classic signs of arson. These classic signs of arson can also appear on their own after flashover, which flashover is when it suddenly, it's like, have you ever seen Backdraft? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where it just suddenly flashes because um, it's reached too high of a temperature. With the naked eye, it's impossible to distinguish between the pore patterns and puddle configurations caused by an accelerant and those caused naturally by post-flashover. The only reliable way to tell the difference is to take samples from the burn patterns and test them in a laboratory for presence of flammable or combustible liquids, which I want to remind you. Nothing came back on those. Nothing came back. Only at the threshold for mineral spirits. And if it's, if it's not clear when I, when I was saying the, uh, the burn patterns and the puddles and all that, this includes the V-shape. Okay, this experiment showed there were V-shapes all over that house that, was, that they purposely set by the couch. So right there we know the V-shapes mean nothing. That is not pointing to a point of origin. Um, I just wanted to make sure that I got that in there. Another thing that the investigators had an issue with was that Willingham was saying that he ran down the burning hallway without scorching his feet. Because remember they asked him, did you put on your shoes? And he's like, no, he was barefoot. If the poor patterns and puddle configurations were a result of a flashover, okay, not an accelerant. Because to them, to the investigators, they're like, that means he he was walking, you know, with it. It wasn't burning as he's walking with it, right, as he's pouring this stuff. Hearst is like, uh-uh, Willingham would had ran down the hallway without scorching his feet because he ran down before flashover. The fire wasn't there, and that's what he kept saying was that it was full of smoke and that he could see the bright lights from the girls' rooms, and that's where the fire was. The rest of the house wasn't fully on fire yet. It was smoke and heat, but it was not the actual fire because flashover hadn't happened yet. And then when he broke that window and he... Re- let air in, flashover happened. Okay. And now the fire is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Something else that they learned from the Lime Street experiment is that fire follows oxygen. The pattern, remember how I said that it went from the girls, from from the hallway to the girls' room, down the hallway, took a sharp right turn out the front door? We now know from the limelight experiment, and Hurst knows this from all of his research, that fire follows oxygen. So when he opened the door, yes, it was like... It burned in that pattern. Mm-hmm. It followed the oxygen. When Willingham exited his bedroom, the hallway was not yet on fire. The flames were contained within the children's bedroom, where, along the ceiling, he saw the bright lights. Just as the investigators safely stood by the door in the Lime Street experiment seconds before flashover, where he was, the, and he was standing there, and he wrote about this in his experiment, that he's standing there right before flashover and there was nothing. It was just the smoke. Willingham could have stood close to the children's room without being harmed. Because remember, it's not quite on fire yet. In fact, up until flashover, levels of carbon monoxide can be remarkably low beneath and outside the thermal cloud. There was still enough like oxygen for him to be able to breathe. I mean, he had smoke damage, you know, in his lungs and whatnot, but it wasn't it wasn't fully carbon monoxide at this point in time to not be able to get out. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is that his explanation is very plausible. 
to have gotten out of the house without burning his feet and without huge injuries because the flashover happened when he was outside of the house. Hurst reviewed the video footage and he was like, um... I don't see where his three points of origin were at. And later, Fogg, now Vesquez, I will say, has perished. He is no longer with us. But Fogg was interviewed by Gran, the author of the New York article. Mm -hmm. And he actually told him that he saw a continuous trailer. So in other words, he saw a path that the fire took, like like Hurst was saying. It's following the path of oxygen. He saw that. He didn't see three points of origin. He disagreed with Vasquez about that. But the prosecutors, nobody on stand ever asked him whether or not he agreed or disagreed with those findings. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't give forth that information. Hearst reviewed the list of more than 20 arson indicators. And he believed that there was only one that had any validity. And that was the positive test for mineral spirits by the threshold of the front door. So he went looking through the case, like, how, what's going on with these mineral spirits? Remember I had said that the fire investigation started four days after the fire? Mm -hmm. Cleanup had already started to take place at that point. But photographs from the day of the fire revealed that right next to the front door was a charcoal grill. I was thinking that in my head. I was wondering if there was a Mm -hmm. grill outside. There was a grill right on the porch. I'm not saying that just to sound like I know what I'm talking about. No, right. (laughs) Yeah, there's a grill. It's a house. It's a house. There's a grill, and right next to it is a can of lighter fluid. Oh, my gosh. Hearst is saying it is very plausible that during- Those are the mineral spirits. Those are the mineral spirits. The hose, you know, when they're blasting the house with the hose, the hose knocked them over. Hell, Willingham could have kicked it over, too. I mean, it was right by the door. So that explains its presence at the very, you know, at the very least, and why it's there and nowhere else. None of the other samples from the house showed accelerant, came back with any sort of accelerant. Without going to the fire scene, Hearst was like, it's impossible for me to pinpoint where the blaze actually started. But based on his evidence, this is a quote, he had little doubt that it was an accidental fire. One caused most likely by the space heater heater or faulty electrical wiring. It explained why there had never been a motive for the crime. Hearst concluded that there was no evidence of arson and that a man who had allegedly lost his three children and spent 12 years in jail and was about to be executed based on junk science. Hearst wrote his report in such a rush that he didn't even pause to fix the typos. Because he knew this is January 2004. He has an execution date of February 17th, 2004. Get that report out. On February 13th, four days before Willingham was scheduled to be executed, he got a call from Reeves Reeves, because Reeves and Elizabeth Gilbert took Hearst's report, took all everything that they had been working uh, working on, and they sent them to the Board of Pardons and Paroles for review. Like, here is new, you know, we've been appealing this and here's our new evidence. Like, you know, here it is. We've got a, an actual scientist here. I'm and like getting closer with the suspense. I'm like climbing on the table. <laughs> Reeves, um, so on February 13th, Reeves tells him that the 15 members of the Board of Pardons and Parole, which reviews applications for clemency and had been sent, Hearst report, had made their decision. Willingham says, what is it? Reeves said, I'm sorry. They denied your petition. What? The vote was unanimous. Reed could offer no explanation. 
The board deliberates in secret, and its members are not bound by any specific criteria. The board members did not even have to review Willingham's materials and usually don't debate a case in person. Rather, they cast their votes by fax, a process that has become known as death by fax between 1976 and 2004 when Willingham filed his petition the state of Texas had approved only one application for clemency from a prisoner on death row. A Texas appellate judge has called the clemency system a legal fiction. Reeves said the board members had never asked him to attend a hearing or answer any questions. They never even asked his counsel any questions. Later, Gran from the New Yorker article interviewed a couple of board members who would have been on the board at the time that Hearst's report came to them they had never heard of Todd Willingham's case you've got to be kidding me nope so you don't they maybe didn't even look at this nope it was never reviewed we'll get to that in a second oh my god he met with his parents just before his execution and he had confessed to his parents that there was one thing on the day of the fire that he had lied about he said that he had never physically crawled into the children's room Remember the story about the doll foot, the teddy bear? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was a little bit uh-huh. suspicious. Yep. Quote, I just didn't want people to think I was a coward, he said. In the days leading up to his death, Todd Stacy asking her to come see him. He wanted her to write a letter to the governor, which was like their Hail Mary attempt, uh, combined with Hearst's report, to stop his execution. Uh, they wanted a stay of execution. Stacy refused to write the letter. Now she believes he's guilty. Really? Mm-hmm. In the ID episode, at around the 37-minute mark, Stacy recalls that she believed Todd was innocent until she met with him on January 31, 2004, just before his execution. You see, earlier in the month, they had been at a court hearing where he got his execution orders, and he told her on the way out, Stacy, come and see me. There's things that need to be said. So she does, and that visit happens on January 31st. This is where Todd confesses to Stacy during that visit that he never tried to save the girls. He ran out of the house. Stacy was heartbroken that he could do that. And according to Stacy, Todd said, Do you remember what you told me just before the fire? Stacy said, Yes, that I was going to divorce you. He said, That's right. I just couldn't let that happen, let you divorce me and go and have more kids with another man. I knew if I took from you what we had, that you couldn't go make another Cameron, Carmen, and Amber with someone else. She said in the interview, she thought of that day where he said, don't be sad, we can have more kids. And then at about the 40-minute mark of the interview, she says, I have read where people keep saying that I defended Todd for 13 years. Why am I going back on that now? She says, no, I didn't defend him for 13 years. I defended him for 10 months. But just before that, like I said, at the 37-minute mark, she said she believed him until January 31st when he confessed. So that is a little conflicting to me. What? I can't take all of these twists and turns. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Okay, that turn took a turn. Yep. And I will point out that Hearst told the author, uh, Gran, quote, People who have never been in a fire don't understand why those who survive often can't rescue the victims. They have no concept of what a fire is like, end quote. Fair enough, because I was an a-hole earlier, assuming. Yep. Why didn't 
Why didn't he try I to mean, grab I wouldn't those call kids? you an a-hole. I'd say you were ignorant to the situation. I'm, I bet we've got firefighter listeners that can confirm for us that the general public have absolutely no idea the intensity that even the smoke and heat from a flame can do to a person. Mm-hmm. Willingham was too scared to see his children burning, and therefore he did just run out of the so house. he didn't actually try to go in the room. He did not try to go into the rooms. It was one room, right? It was. It was just, yes, one room. With Amber being found on the bed, on his bed, he had no idea that Amber was even in his room. He woke up. It, 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 was, it should be noted he was drinking the night before. He woke up. He heard her calling, but did not. It was The whole house was filled with smoke at this time. So he, he couldn't see her. And, and he didn't he, realize that she was right next to him calling him? No, because he all he heard was daddy, daddy. And he was Nothing probably more. Like fast asleep right. and woke up. Yes. He wakes up. The, ho- the room is filled with smoke. He grabs his pants, finds his pants that he had left on the floor, puts them on, and it's so intense. When he gets into the hallway, it is so intense that he can't go to the girl's room where he saw the... And I'll say this, they died of smoke inhalation. They were more than likely gone by then anyway. Um I guess that makes me feel a little bit better-ish. And, and then, Still horrible. Yes, and the way that there was charring on the twins' bodies, but it was just smoke inhalation on Amber's. I mean, Amber's was Amber was taken out by a firefighter. They were able to go through the smoke and get to her. You know, she was she probably stopped talking that from the smoke really inhalation. Hurts my soul that he could he have was right next her to up. her, mm-hmm. but he had no he had no idea. But until you understand the confusion and what it's like. We'll add drinking to that now. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know how drunk he was or if he, you know, I don't either. know. But yep, no idea. I don't, I don't know that information. But added the confusion. I do know that for my job, we do a, a really long segment on fire safety for um, the daycares that we investigate and inspect. And the fire or the video is so chilling and so scary that it makes you want to go home and unplug Fill your house with fire with smoke detectors and unplug everything that doesn't need to be plugged in. I'm gonna need to see that video because they make it very clear that you have seconds and that's it. You do not have minutes. You have seconds. It is intense. You will be completely disoriented, and so to me, this is plausible. I understand why he lied about that. Yeah. He's the dad. He's supposed and to be the protector. Hurst mm-hmm. is it Hurst? Yes, that report from Hurst that didn't have. She didn't. Feel that that was convincing at all? No. She says, I'll give you a quote from her at the very end. But yeah, no. Okay. It did not. Um, I, I don't know that she knew of that report the day that she went to meet him, the days leading up to his death. Okay, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know if she knew that information. Gotcha. Um, I just know that she wouldn't like write that letter for him. Willingham had actually asked his parents and family not to be present in the gallery during the process. But as he looked out, he could see Stacy watching. Oh, gosh. He did throw a fit about her being there, and they did inform him there's nothing they could do about it. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert did not attend the execution due to being in a car accident that left her paralyzed days before the execution. Oh, my God. That's horrible. I know. I'm sorry. I just slapped you. I bitch slapped you across you the face with that information. You just, <laughs> you just clotheslined I me. Did. <laughs> I am down. Man down. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Is she still I'm, like, what? Where I'm about is she? to throw a right hook, too. Okay. So just right. hold on. She was not able to get word to him explaining why he was, she wasn't there, and he had asked her to be there. <gasps> yeah. 
this guy I know is like doomed. I know. Just before Willingham received the lethal injection on February 17th at 6 p.m., he was asked if he had any last words. And he said, quote, the only statement I want to make is that I'm an innocent man convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return, so the earth shall become my throne. End quote. The warden pushed the remote control. Sorry. She's crying. I'm sorry. I don't think he did it. And it's, it's yeah. I know. It hurt. I know. Do you want me to go through the drugs, or do you, should I do this? You do you. I don't know what I want You do to. you. All right. The warden pushed a remote control, and sodium by pet. Pentol? Oh, gosh. You guys, your medical experts are going to be like, you are a blasphemy to our <laughs> career, Charnel. Peasant. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm practically illiterate for the next four sentences. I want everyone to know. It was a barbiturate anyway. It was pumped into Willingham's body. And then came a second drug, which paralyzed the, paralyzes the diaphragm, making it impossible to breathe. And finally, a third drug. Potassium chloride filled his veins until his heart stopped at 6.20. On his death certificate, the cause of death was listed as homicide. After his death, and be I'm about to crush you. Hold your breath. After his death, his parents were allowed to touch his face for the first time in more than a decade. Later, at Willingham's request, they cremated his body and secretly spread some of his ashes over his children's graves. He had told his parents, please don't ever stop fighting and vindicating for me. Or vindicating me. So <laughs> collect yourself over I'm there. I'm destroyed. I know. Can it's so sad. We need to start a podcast that's happier. <laughs> What's happened since? The Innocence Project obtained, through the Freedom of Information Act, all the records from the governor's office and the board pertaining to Hearst's report. The documentation show that they received the report, but neither office had any record of anyone acknowledging it, taking note of its significance, significance, responding to it, or calling any attention to it within the government. The only reasonable conclusion is that the governor's office and the Board of Pardons and Paroles ignored scientific evidence. That's a direct quote from Grant's article. In December 2004, some questions were raised about the scientific evidence that was used to convict Willingham. And this was basically started to be raised by different authors in like the Chicago Tribune, um, they published an investigative series on flaws in forensic science upon learning of Hearst's report. Nearly two years later, the Innocence Project commissioned three of their top fire investigators to conduct an independent review of the arson evidence in Willingham's case. The, com- the panel concluded that each and every one of the indicators of arson had been scientifically proven to be invalid. Gosh. In 2005, Texas established a government commission to investigate ag- allegations of error and misconduct by forensic scientists. The first cases that are, were being reviewed by the commission are those of Willingham and some other popular ones that were very similar to Willingham's. In mid-August, the noted fire scientist Craig Byler, who was hired by the commission, completed his investigation. In a scathing report, he concluded that investigators in the Willingham case had no scientific basis for claiming that the fire was arson, ignored evidence that contradicted their theory, had no comprehension of flashover and fire dynamics, relied on discredited folklore, and failed to eliminate potential accidental or alternative causes of the fire. He said that Vascal's approach deemed to deny rational reasoning 
and was more characteristic of mystics or psychics. Once more, Byler determined that the investigation violated, as he put it, not only the standards of today, but even of the time period. So he was wrong even in 9 to 1. This is the saddest thing I've ever heard. Mm. According to a 2004 study, this is from Grant's article, by the Center of Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University Law School, lying police and jailhouse informants are the leading cause of wrongful conviction in capital cases in the United States. Because, remember Johnny Webb there? Mm, I do. There, There's some suspicion that he was a... Jailhouse informant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say there's some. I would raise an eyebrow yeah. for sure. Yep. One month after David Grand published his investigative article in The New Yorker, Stacy wrote the Fort Worth Star Telegram that during that visit just before death, Todd Willingham admitted to her that he intentionally set the fire and murdered their children. And she admitted that she did lie on the stand for Todd. With when and she did the interview with um, Elizabeth Gilbert as well, still claiming his innocence. Remember, she did that. Yeah, two thousand era esque. Mm-hmm. She says, and I quote in the interview, and you can watch it to make your determination for yourself. But she says, "This is a quote from Stacy. I know Todd is guilty. You don't know the whole story. You don't know my life with Todd. But after watching this, I hope you do. This is the truth." End quote. I have a scientific mind. So for me, I believe the science speaks, but I, I think that Todd Willingham at that time and point in time in his life when he was a 23, 24-year-old hothead, was he, he was not a good person and he had a lot to work on. But I, this is a good reason of why we should all raise an eyebrow at capital punishment. Well, and let me just tell you how, how scary this is. So at the beginning of the case you tell you told me what the you know the two arson investigators had said mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah yeah mm-hmm. I, I i get it okay that makes sense he's guilty but i don't know what i'm talking about i don't know fires mm-hmm. i don't know anything so you have to think of a, a jury or a judge or anybody like that that mm-hmm. i mean i'm not saying that they wouldn't know some things but they're not experts no. right so you get somebody that's supposed to be an expert in there and they're telling you this is what the this, fire says. This is what happened. Yeah. You're going to be like, okay. Absolutely. Credible source. Yes. Just like I did. Right. This is why That's I didn't terrifying. want to tell you anything about the case. I wanted you literally to listen from that perspective. And do you see now what I mean about like taking puzzle pieces and putting them all together to paint a picture? Yeah. It's terrifying to think of how easy it is to tell somebody and make it sound like you know what to you're talking wrongfully about. wrongfully convict someone. Absolutely. It's terrifying. There's more information too. Even I just um, couldn't, didn't have enough time to fit it all in here of it will terrify you to know how many people, I don't, I don't want to throw stones at the state of Texas, but just because they're, they're the focus of this case, I will just say that information, you know, what came forward, but how many cases were just blatantly ignored. There was one where, DNA evidence came back from a um, a rape murder case. DNA evidence came back to show that the person who was on death row was not, that, that wasn't his sperm. And the state of Texas was like, he could have wore a condom or didn't ejaculate. We got the right guy. And they executed him. Oh gosh. Even though the DNA evidence was like, nay, nay, this wasn't his sperm. That is so scary. And but and it's not just Texas. It's happening everywhere. You know, it's not. It's <laughs> well, that just goes to show. Like, I mean, teaching moment. 
I just I drank the Kool Aid. I was like, yes, right. That's that makes sense. Me too. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. You guys, I watched the ID interview with this poor, battered woman who lost her three babies. She is a victim. Absolutely here. Oh, absolutely, um, yes. I watched that and was like, oh, this motherfucker. Well, that's how what you think could when, you? Yeah, yes. when it first starts. Then, at the request of our listener, Constance, I watched Trial by Fire. And I was like, um, okay. Wait a second here. Yeah, I had some eyebrows. I was like, um, okay, is this just made for TV drama? You know? I'm like, I don't know how much of this is factual. So then I bought The New Yorker, and I went digging And I went on this investigative tour with Gran and was like, holy shit, hold on. And, I mean, once you start putting all those other pieces together and just what we've known from cases that we've covered, how many cases have we covered where the evidence seems to point one way and it's, I don't want to bash police. I'm not going to do that. That's not what we're about. But it's good old boy club lack of correct correct training you know just like hurst was saying here's the problem we've got old timey folks teaching the new guys what do you call these... it garbage science yeah junk junk, junk science. science yeah absolutely because until we know better we just do as we're told this is what we've always done yes and that is what i think happened here but there were numerous chances for this man's life to be saved and for the death penalty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. For a conviction, it has to be without beyond a reasonable doubt. But certainly for the death penalty, and that is not what we have here. That's what blows my mind is that they were appealing it. They had new new evidence coming in from someone that was legit. And ignoring and, it. And nobody looked at it. No, ignoring it. And so... This, you know, this interview was done by Stacy, and and I do want to point out that it wasn't until Gran uh, did this investigative report in the New Yorker that she came forward and said, "By the way, in my last meeting with him, where he was, where Todd says he asked Stacy to write a letter, yeah, to the governor because she had done it before. I don't know if I didn't mention that. I'm sorry. She did write a letter in one of the appeals before to the governor saying he was innocent. Saying he was innocent. She did that after you his threw me conviction. for a curveball when you said that she said he confessed. Mm-hmm. She openly admits in the interview that she lied on the stand for Todd, but that he was not innocent. Then she shares letters for the first time with the public on the ID episode Evil Lives Here as well that she doesn't read verbatim. She begins it by reading, Dear Stacy, I hope this letter finds you well. Then she goes on to summarize it, to say that Todd was thanking her for the visit and that it was cleansing to his conscience. So she is saying that not only did he tell me face to face, but then he's admitting it in writing. To play devil's advocate and to look at this from a different perspective, though, It was not written in the words, I killed our daughters and I am guilty. So by being able to tell you that, I have cleared, I have cleansed my conscience. If those words were in that letter, I have no doubt that she would have stated that. Instead, he was thanking her for for coming and letting her know that it helped him, that he cleansed his conscience, perhaps by apologizing for the, the time they were together for abusing her, and for admitting that he did not try to save the girls and just ran out of the house. Perhaps that was the cleansing part to him, especially since it had weighed on him for so long that he had felt like people would look at him as being less than a man for not trying to save his children. Then she goes on to say, I don't believe what any report says. I don't believe any New Yorker. I believe what Todd told me. 
Now, there have been many who have questioned the validity of Stacy's statement that Todd confessed to her, especially since Stacy did not come out with this information until after Gran had released his article detailing Hearst's report in the New Yorker. So there's a little food for thought. That's Stacy's perspective. I do want to point out as well that later the arson investigators tell Gran that the refrigerator being in front of the back door was actually not considered a part of the arson at all. It was just there. The linoleum underneath the refrigerator had been undisturbed, so it had been there for a while. Um, they, it wasn't considered a part of the evidence of arson. I would think at some point there would be resentment. Yeah. That you well, didn't try to get them. You didn't, you know, when that yes. came out. So who knows the emotions and the thought processing that thought processing that she went through. Yeah. But, and then just think about it. Now you have half the world saying, holy shit, Texas, you, uh, pro- you know, you killed an innocent man. And she's like, hold the phone. I, Todd's a lot of things, but innocent isn't one of them. And to her, he's not. He's an abuser. He was a piss poor husband, but there's that's a long jump to sociopathic murderer, someone who intentionally sets fire to his house with his kids in it because, you know, he listens to Led Zeppelin and and is cheating and an abusive to her. Yeah. But in her mind, I mean, he's a monster to her. It's so hard, right? I mean, how are you guys all feeling out there? Is everybody okay? I am not okay. <laughs> okay? No. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my opinion, which means nothing. <laughs> Please enlighten me. Regardless of of her saying that he did it and he confessed, I don't think he did it. I don't think he did. I, th- I think. And I don't science, go that way often. Me neither. And the science, I think he was a, at that time, he was a real shitty person. And um, oh, yeah, don't I don't want to minimize. <laughs> and I, I absolutely believe that he didn't go into that. He was disoriented, that he was too scared mm-hmm. to go and try to save the girls. 100% believe that, but I'm also not going to cast judgment because heaven forbid I'm ever put in that fucking position. I don't, my God, you know, I don't know what I would do. I'd like to tell you I'm going to try like hell, but like Hurst says, people don't know what it's like to be in a fire. Absolutely, and I don't want to pretend to know what it's like. It's hor- That's I hate to even think about it. No. It would be horrific. Right. He, he was labeled from the beginning because he wasn't a stand-up guy, and I, I get that. I don't think what he did was okay, the way he treated his wife. I mean, sad you have no soul if you're going to beat up a pregnant woman. Uh, right. That's your interest. Yes. But I don't think he did it. I really don't. And and his family does not uh, believe that he did either, And which I think is, is very And know, I can't typical. say, you know, if I had found out that my husband at the time was drunk or drink, had been drinking and ran straight out and didn't try to save my babies, I would probably have some opinions yes. of him. Yes. Absolutely. So, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not trying to pretend to know what her thought process or thought process was or what she went through, but. Right. Where you might be at. I, I swear. Still, even her saying that, I just don't, uh, I think he's innocent. I think an innocent man died. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. And you know what this case taught me too? Before researching this, I would probably, if you had said, are you for the death penalty? I would have been like, well, in. You know, in murder cases where you can completely prove that the person has murdered them, yeah. Uh, I have completely changed my entire, I've learned and grew grew from this episode. Oh, I should give you more information on Elizabeth Gilbert. It did take many, many years, but through determination, she is taking steps again. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's yep. amazing. And she still uses Todd as her inspiration. I'm not going to lie. I mean, yes, he ter- he started out as a pile of crap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was um, a he was. steamy pile of dog shit. But it's it does tug your heartstrings a little bit that he wanted her there and sh- and he didn't know why and he yep. died without Yep. Couldn't she couldn't get the word to yeah. him. I know. That sucks. Me too. Especially because like you said, I don't think I think he was a shitty person, but I don't think that he murdered his three children. I don't either. I really don't. I well, and especially, I get it, Hurst, that sounded legit. Like, he has his opinion out there, but then there was other opinions, too. There were. That, yeah. said, that said the same things, like, no, this was not arson. Right. That's just it. There's so many other people confirming and have sent since then experts, real experts. Yes. With PhDs. Yeah. You so know, it's like Hurst doing did his tests. report, and then some others are like, they did. Yeah. They confirmed. Yep. So yep. that's where I'm just like, I, mm-hmm. I don't think he did it. I agree. Well, and then when you talk about the trial incidences where the people who deemed him a sociopath had never even talked to him or evaluated him. And one had a master's degree in, you know, family. That's like me going up there. It and is. Saying, it's either mm. one of us. Yep. Yes. 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 Skulls. I do declare. <laughs> exactly. Snakes and skulls. I have like the little like. The glass the monocle. thing. Yeah, the uh, monocle, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Whip that <laughs> monocle out. Are you ready for a brain bath, my dear? I am ready. I need okay. one. I do. I am going to do a Florida one because, you know. Florida the, is like our rock. I love Florida. At the end of Shout the, like, out to Floridians. We can count on Florida for yes. some good stories. Yeah, and I am, I'm grateful. Send them our way. All right, here's the title of the article. This is from... Oh, funnierdie.com. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll Perfect. take it. Yes. And the title is, Someone Stole an Entire Driveway. In Florida, <laughs> obviously. That's what it actually says. <laughs> yep. I need details, please. A woman named Michelle Wright returned home Tuesday night and found her driveway missing. Apparently, she pulled into her house and noticed that the whole thing was gone, and she felt a huge bump where the driveway should have been. Witnesses saw two men digging up 300 square feet of bricks while she was gone for the day. The thieves loading bricks worth loading bricks up into a pickup truck weren't at all suspicious because there were other workers building a barn on her property. Wright's driveway was taken, and yet her fine jewelry and the money that she stored under the mattresses were untouched. Wow. They, article, we just want the bricks, ma'am. Right, the just, article goes, Florida, what are you? <laughs> I love it. Me too. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine coming home and your driveway is gone? That is the most random ass thing. I don't to even be know if I'd you. be mad. I just would have questions. Listen, but at the same time, bricks are expensive. Have you ever priced a brick? I haven't. What the shit? But obviously, somebody knew. Like, hey, we yeah, we can't. Aff- we need these we're bricks. Building a chimney, and we're not paying for we it. We're building our <laughs> fort. This woman has. It's bricks. gonna say no girls allowed. And we've got to get it from, we need these bricks. she's got 300 square feet of bricks. It's not even that many. Someday, you all are going to see me out there writing these articles. It is my dream. I've <laughs> I, said it before, I hope and that I will you say can. it again. Because then we will feature them on the, oh, absolutely. I'll be like, this is direct from Amber's desk. <laughs> yeah. She's out there in the trenches that's, getting the stories. That's right. I will do it. Oh, gosh. Okay, you guys. So, hey, please give us a rate and review. I like never. I remember love how what you just said that. Say. Like you caught my attention. Like, oh, what is what it? Is, what is it? <laughs> this just in? Hey, 
<laughs> please uh, give us a rate and review if you can. Uh, we definitely, for the nicest and the funniest, if we could get a hold of you, would uh, send you a little something, I'm thinking. Yes, we would. Yes. Follow us on social media. Oh, my gosh. You guys have been rocking it on social media. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for commenting. Anytime that you comment on our stuff, share our stuff. That helps us so much. If you want more content than what we already provide or you want it faster, join our Patreon. Come join us. For 3 5 or $10 a month, the low, low price, you can get early access to all of our episodes. When we do part one and part twos, you get them right together. And you get more of us, outtake episodes, all kinds of fun crap. Feel free to do that. Join CrimeCuriousPatreon.com and you can email us case suggestions or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Please don't what cut that shit? out. <laughs> um, all I was trying to say was, oh. all I was trying to say was, you can send us brain baths. Yes, too. we love we love to get extra brain. We do baths. either through Facebook or crimecurious at yahoo.com Whatever a, you know, a case, a story. Your own brain bath, whatever. Even if it's something funny that happened to you, give yeah. it to us. Yeah. Stop hoarding it for yourself. Let us share, share. with the people. Yes. <laughs> All right, you guys. And so we will talk to you again on Thursday then. Yes. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.